Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen, brothers. That's the best. It doesn't get any better than that, and that's the point of the whole Bible. Thank you, Tom Parrish. As you might have guessed, it is time for Guide Talk, which means... My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Ferdorn. I just got a text message from 007 that he'd love to be on today, but he's busy. So he's probably in Monte Carlo or something, wearing a tuxedo as we speak, (laughs) driving a cool car, because that's what he does. But if you have questions for us, let let, let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. I'll say that again slowly. 877-933-2484. Two four, eight four, and we'll do our very best to answer any question that comes in. Um, thank you for your patience, and thank you for your questions. All right, here's the first question that comes all the way to us from Knoxville, Tennessee. After death, when do we receive our glorified bodies? I'm looking at you, Jeff Ferdorn. On Resurrection Day, mm-hmm. uh, we, there's a future day. Uh, it is the Resurrection Day, um, in which all of the church, all of those who are saved, uh, will receive their glorified bodies. The scripture des- describes this body right now, especially 1 Corinthians 15 does a really good job. It's kind of known as the resurrection chapter. This body right now is what Paul calls a, an earth tent, a temporary dwelling. And we have a permanent body called a glorified body that we will receive, I believe, at the rapture of the church, which is the resurrection. First Thessalonians 4 says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain, First Corinthians 15, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and then caught up with the Lord, and there we will be with the Lord. For- All right. It's time for you to take over, Tom Parrish, because he just disappeared. I'm sorry. Don't, <laughs> don't leave, Jeff. Actually, I, yes, that's exactly right. And I was thinking... Um, it's interesting how the Lord says that we're made up of four different parts, heart, mind, soul, and body. And each one of those is addressed to some degree in the New Testament with the resurrection. They're kind of spread out. But I know Jeff is really good, and I've been working at this for years, of creating charts that lay this out so people can visually see it. And so uh, I've got to be working on mine. Jeff may have one done. But I think visually those are the kind of things I'd like to see more charts on for Christians that can hang up in their home and see that. Because just talking about it can be confusing at some at times, mm-hmm. but it's good stuff. Yeah, I agree, Jeff. More uh, more on that subject. I love that Paul talks. Can, can you hear me? I yes. can. Yeah. Can you hear me, guys? Yes, I can. Okay, good. Good. Um, so Paul talks about this earthly body. Though right now we bear the likeness from Earth, that Adam. So too one day we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, and that is Jesus. And that is a reference of our glorification. In fact, in in Romans it says, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
for those who have believed, we will receive a glorified body because God has promised it over and over again in the New Testament. It is a promise without condition. It will happen, and and it's going to be awesome. Our glorified bodies, remember, just like Jesus' glorified bodies, will be able to eat, will be able to touch, will be able to hug. Remember, Mary grasped Jesus. Thomas touched Jesus. He ate with Peter along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he walked with them on the uh, with the two men on the road to Emmaus. I think a lot of Christians have this idea that we're just going to be floating around in a cloud someplace for all of eternity. And to tell you the truth, I don't even get excited for that. But we have a real glorified body that we are going to live in in the kingdom of heaven forever. You know, I was mentioning, Jeff, that you and I both like to make Bible charts. And I'll bet you've got a Bible chart on this, and I'm not a betting man, but I'm <laughs> sure you've already written this out. Um, I've been working on it myself. And in the future, um, and Bill knows I'm never afraid to give out my information for people to find me. I would love to send that to anybody who wants it, because I think the visual is so powerful to be able to see it laid out, and then with the scripture verses underneath it. Absolutely. So do you have yours done, Jeff? I have, well, I have several charts related to this time when we will receive our glorified bodies. I also have a, a list of all the passages in scripture in the New Testament where God promises that we will receive a new glorified body. You know, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Yep. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and he who believes in me will live. Uh, now, I just lost the rest of the verse in my mind, even, even though he dies. That is a reference to our future glorification. So even in the Gospels, Jesus is pointing or hinting at this glorified body. So yeah, I actually have a, a document that lists all of the passages of the New Testament that describe this new glorified body. You know, I'm working on my chart right now, and you would help me immensely if you just send that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I will. After the show, I'll Thank send you. it off to you. Yeah. You're All right. Welcome. Another question has come in from Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Hmm. Why is Satan released after a thousand years, and are we currently able to identify which nations are Gog and Magog? Oh, yeah. The, the Let's tackle the, first, the last one first. Uh, Gog and Magog by scholars has generally been accepted to mean Russia. Um, so it's the Gog from the land of Magog. So it's kind of a person versus the kingdom and it's the people of the north. And most, I, I think most scholars that I have read identify it as Russia. So yes, uh, I think we can. But the, the key is that in that day when Gog and Magog come against Israel, it says in Ezekiel, and the many nations with him will come down and attack Israel. So I think this Gog and Magog war is uh, one more of many descriptions in the Old Testament about the final battle in which all the nations of the earth at the end of the tribulation are going to come upon Israel and try to destroy her once and for all. Because Satan knows that if he can destroy Israel, he can make God out to be a liar, because it would mean that, because God has promised from Abraham all the way on down that Israel would never cease to be a nation before him. He's released at the end of the millennial reign on, of, of Christ, this thousand-year reign in Revelation 20, to separate out the people 
unbelievers during the millennial reign, yes, there are unbelievers during the millennial reign, will follow Satan. They surround the city uh, of God, the, the city that he loves, it's Jerusalem. And then it says, fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And it's kind of like a second Armageddon, actually, if you will. And and I think it's 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 simple. He releases Satan for a short time at the end of the millennium to separate out those people, just like he separated people out at the rapture, just as he separates people out at the sheep and the goat judgment when he comes at the second coming, so too at the end of the millennium. He's separating separating out the believers from the unbelievers, the wheat from the tare. You know, I know Satan will never listen to me, but I'd like to give him a piece of advice. Just give up now. <laughs> Because you're not going to win, Jesus will have the final word, and no matter what Satan plans, no matter what he does, Jesus will have that final word, and Satan is already defeated and will finally be defeated publicly in a way we can't even imagine. You know, that idea that Satan is a defeated foe, uh, Tom, that's so important, because we've, we are already victorious. Yes. You know, I've read the back of the book, we win Yep. And uh, and God wins. There is no question about who is going to win. And, and I love that promise in Scripture that says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So, every, yes, he is a defeated foe. Every once in a while, I'll be at a meeting or some Bible study, and then I'll say, you know, I can summarize the book of Revelation in two words. And people look at me like, how is that even possible? What do you mean? Jesus wins. That's the <laughs> bottom line. Yep. Nice, nice discussion. All right, here's another question. I very much want to seek God through the scriptures, as it says that if we seek him, we will find him. Here's my problem. How do I go on this quest without intellectualizing the Bible too much so that I can develop a true love for God as I develop his word and don't make it too much just about acquiring knowledge? Oh, good question. And there's a good answer. What do you do when you sit down? Like, I always get people into John first, you know, when they really want to start growing. Maybe take them through other books. But I always give them three steps. And the three steps, and you've heard this before, many of you, you know, what what does the text actually say? That's where you do a little bit of scholarship. Make sure you know what a rabbi is, what a Pharisee is, a Sadducee. Next step is, uh, so what? So what is it saying? What does it mean? And then finally, what now? What am I going to do with this text in my daily life? And I think that's where a lot of people want to stop it at number two, even at number one. They want, to, they want to be the ivory tower scholar. They want to know all the facts about it. That's not as important as doing what the Word of God says. And it's at number three where you finally, if you take it and you start doing it, I mean, when Jesus says, forgive your enemies, you might want to make a list and start that process and see how it goes. Or if he says, you know, help the poor, you might want to go out of your way to help poor people in a way you've never done before and do it personally. I, I love all these organizations where you can give money to it, but that's not very personal. You know, that's like when I was dating, I didn't go window shopping. You know, I was I was not looking in a window at, at these young ladies that I wanted to marry. I was looking for the one I would marry. And so I'd say, go do it and see what the Lord does. You know, John 5.39 says this, and it's kind of the basis of this question. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Yep. yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So I think the idea that some do study scripture in an academic sense and have refused to come to the person that all of the scriptures point to, namely the person Jesus Christ to have 
life, life eternal. As a believer in Christ, who's Holy Spirit filled, the only way that I know that you can really grow in your faith and understanding, if you're going to trust somebody, the more you know them, the more you can trust them. And the more we study scripture, the more we come to know God and we can then trust him more. So uh, I think all scripture is profitable, useful for training in righteousness. And I think that's where you start. These are feeling like above average answers Hmm. from both of you today. Well, we're just living with it because we've experienced it ourselves. Okay. Well, it just sounds really good. It is uh, Guide Talk, and we're doing our extended version today, so a little extra time, which means we have extra time for your amazing, wonderful questions. Maybe you've had a question in the back of your brain that you've wanted an answer for, and maybe you don't know how to ask your pastor, or you had a discussion at a Bible study, and this subject came up, and we didn't know where to go. Well, if you send it over, we'll address your question. You can, of course, remain anonymous. 877-933-2484. My panel is Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. We will be right back. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus Himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. Some really good questions coming in today for Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what question you have because I care about your question and I want to hear it. 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, here's another question that just came in. Can you please comment on what it means to wash one another's feet and what that looks like for us today? Well, the way it would look... I can quote... John thirteen ten and fourteen fifteen. Jesus answered, "Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you as an example that you should do as I have done for you." How does that apply today? It's interesting during Lent. Many churches have foot washing services. I know they do. It's the lowest turnout they ever have <laughs> because it feet and everybody washes their feet before they come. Uh, that was not the point. We've been watching the TV series The Crown, and everybody waits on the queen. Everybody waits on the king. Everybody does everything for them. To have the queen wash their feet or to serve them in their home dinner 
or to take care of their automobile problems would blow these people away. Now, we have the King of Kings, who's demonstrating that to his disciples, washing their feet, which was unheard of. Now, a guest did that when somebody came to their house. That was normal. But for Jesus to do that, unheard of. And he's saying, look, if you want to represent me in this world, you're not going to represent like a king. You're going to represent like a servant. And so today, that means practically helping people, even if they don't thank you, even if they're not interested in hearing about Jesus. When you have the opportunity, you still reach out and you serve them because you're representing Jesus and you never know, you'll never know what divine appointments will come along or what doors will open for you to talk about the truth. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the key word that Tom said there was a servant and and that's exactly how Jesus came to this earth. He didn't come as a ruling king or even a powerful warrior or anything else. He came as a humble baby that came to serve, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so, too, he calls us as his body to also be servants. And and so I think of that passage where it says, Husbands, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands. Couples, submit to one another. Children, honor your parents. Love one another. Serve one another. Uh, uh, carry each other's burdens. Build each other up. Uh, you know, God, God has a specific design for our lives. We don't always live it out well, but Jesus modeled this idea of servanthood perfectly. All right. Nice job. Let me see here. Uh, I am confused about predestination. Were Hitler, Stalin, and Mao all predestined to be evil? <laughs> this is a, a big one. This Obviously, this debate kind of between the idea that that God elects some unto salvation and the rest are basically out of luck on one side of the debate. On the other side, God has died for all, offers salvation to all, and whosoever believes uh, will be saved. And, you know, this debate has been going on for, what, 500 years or more uh, when you had Jacob Arminius and, and John Calvin express their five points, uh, kind of each one on either side of this is- issue. Uh, but predestination, the word actually only shows up twice in Scripture. And I'll just cover one of them really quick. In Romans, it says, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So this is actually a a verse about a believer's glorification. We were just talking about the glorified body. Believers are predestined to be glorified. I don't think that some are predestined to be saved. I think believers are predestined to be glorified. So God wishes none to perish. He loves all. He sent his son for all, and he died for all. And whosoever believes is saved. Mm -hmm. I would agree, because you cannot perpetrate evil on the Lord. The Bible says he does no evil. To create someone, and they never had an opportunity to be saved, and have not stand eternity in damnation, because God predestined them to that, is not the God we read about in Jesus. We don't see that in him. Jesus' complaint was always, you hear the truth, you know who I am, but you won't come to me. Well, did Hitler have an opportunity to come to the Lord? Yes, he did. Did Stalin have an opportunity? Yes, he did. Matter of fact, most people don't know Stalin memorized the entire New Testament. 
he was thinking about becoming a, an Orthodox priest at one time. They heard, but they didn't respond. Now, when you get to predestined, and I like what you said, Jeff, because it fits very well. The image is, you know, I don't care who we are in this life. Our goal as Christians is to look more and more like Jesus and to behave more like him. And I like to think of predestination biblically in that sense, more like a mold. The mold is the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he thinks, the way he talks, the way he acts, the way he behaves. And our goal in this life is predestined by the Father to become just like Jesus by trusting in him. And so our speech, our thought, our behavior becomes his. And if we would do that, it'd be a marvelous place in this world. You know, you, 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 your words expressed God's heart that I see in, in Scripture. You know, I, I love that line where Jesus says, Oh, Israel, I've, how I've longed to gather you yeah. like a hen gathers her chicks, right? But you we're were not, not willing. And so in the same way, Paul in the New Testament says that people perish not because God somehow didn't predestine them to salvation, but they perish, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, because they they refused to love the truth and thus be saved. I will also say that that might be the craziest thing I've heard on Guy Talk, that Stalin memorized the New Testament. <laughs> so I, I did I, not know that. I am completely struggling with that, but that's just me. I don't well, know how you well, the come. devil knows the Bible. I get backward that, and but forward. you have to work really hard at memorizing that much of Scripture. And yep. I don't know how you would be able to turn around and be as evil as he would be. I'm not questioning int- you. I'm just I, saying it sounds really far-fetched. It goes back to our earlier discussion. He intellectualized the Word of God. Yeah. He didn't submit to the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not enough just to read it. Or memorize it. You got to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not putting you on probation or anything. No, I know you're not. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Do I get to come back next week? Yeah, you do. Okay. Absolutely, you do. Are we, are we still above average now? <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Turning turn it down a little. Yeah, that, that that drew the curve down a little bit. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Another question in Exodus: Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Wouldn't that have kept him from repenting? I think that's an overused word and misunderstood in English because it makes it sound like God purposely made Pharaoh the bad guy so they could free his people. Now, I don't see that as much in Scripture as the fact that the things that the Lord did to get Pharaoh's attention, because initially Moses and Aaron came to the Lord, and what did they ask for? They asked that the people could go out in the wilderness and worship, all right? And Pharaoh just said, no. Then the plagues began to come, and each plague was designed to get Pharaoh to change his mind. It wasn't just to punish the Egyptian people. But Pharaoh reached a point of hardness, and it was hardness because of what the Lord did. And I think about that in our life. Think of today about if you have a child die, and I've had a grandson die, if you have had a hard time. It's very easy to want to blame the Lord and say it's his fault, rather than saying, it is my own hardness of heart that stops me from loving others or serving others. So I know what the scriptures say. I've read it in depth. I've looked at it, and I'm not convinced that it was the Lord purposely making Pharaoh hard. Pharaoh was hard because Pharaoh didn't want to obey the Lord. I, I totally agree with that. And and I, I also want to throw in one more kind of component of this that I think we forget. And that is the the the, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened so that he would not listen to Moses and Aaron to let the people go. Yeah. So people want to re- 
relate the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to salvation or his turning to the Lord in faith or so on. This is not about salvation. It's not about Pharaoh's faith in the Lord. It's it's about his heart being hardened to let his people go. Yep. And and that's what the heart was hardened about. Not This is not a salvation passage. All right, we'll take our break. And when we come back, lots more time for your questions. Great, great questions coming in. Thank you for sending them over. It really makes it... Uh, a great guide talk. So 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish are my guide talk power panel today. We'll be right back. Get happy, you better chase all your cares away. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy, get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy. The Lord It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill All right, it is Guy Talk and an extended version, which means we're going to go a little bit longer today, which I love, by the Mm -hmm. way, because it's hanging out with my beloved friends, guys I love and trust and love having conversation with. So there you go. We feel the same way, Bill. Ah, shucks. I do. Thanks. Absolutely. So let's get back to uh, the, the Magog and company question. Um, Michael said uh, an alternative would be Magog uh, our, and, and company are, or Magog and Gog are countries that surround Israel and their raid is mid-trib and contributes to the rise of Antichrist. That was his master's thesis. <laughs> and we're supposed to respond to his master's thesis well, I don't here, think so. you sh- I don't think you should, but... Um, Tom, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd like you to send it to me because I'd no, like to, to read it in that sense. But, I, yeah, I, there are many, 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 many theories out there no. on how all this fits together. And I understand that. And I think it's important to study. I don't criticize anybody that studies it. However, it must never take precedence over becoming submitting to Jesus, becoming like him, and proclaiming his kingdom in this world so that people become disciples. My concern has always been that I can get lots of people to show up when I do this kind of discussion. And they go home uh, thinking they've got a little more information when maybe they do, maybe they don't. But getting people to really spend time about discipleship and about winning the loss to the kingdom, it's hard to get crowds to come out for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the... the uh, I'm not saying don't discuss it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's not as big as it ought to be compared to the other things because you know what? It's going to happen no matter how I figure it out. It's going to happen and the Lord's going to return and I better be ready. And the way I get ready is by doing now what he's told me to do. So his, obviously this, uh, when this war is the Gog Magar war, Ezekiel 38, um, especially in the last, oh, 20 years or so, um, has caused a lot of different views of interpretations, controversies as far as when is this battle? Um, the, 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 the listener uh, in his question said that he places it at the midpoint of the tribulation. There's a lot of people uh, today that put this battle at the beginning of the tribulation. I actually put 
the the war at the end of the tribulation. I think it's one of many descriptions in the Old Testament that describe the final battle when Jesus comes and destroys all the armies, all the nations of the earth, and treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Remember, it says in Ezekiel 38 that it's not just Gog and Magog, but all the nations with her also come uh, upon Israel and try to destroy her, as we were talking about earlier. So, there, you know, there's a key phrase, in, and it starts way back in 36, 37, 38, 39, Ezekiel, all those chapters, and it's this, and it's repeated, I don't know, about 15 times. It says, and then they will know that I am the Lord, mm-hmm. and then they will know that I am the Holy One of Israel, and then they will know that I am the Lord. I think there's only, and that's the description throughout this battle description of Ezekiel 38, and I think there's only one day that that applies to. And that is the day when Jesus comes on a cloud, riding on his white horse, and treads the winepress of the wrath of God to establish his kingdom. And may it happen soon. Yeah. I mean, mm, yeah. Amen. He's the only solution. And I hope when I brought this question up and there was a little bit of chatter between us, a little bit of, okay, who's going to take this question, that that didn't uh, feel in the least bit disrespectful because no. that's not our approach at no. all. No, I'm, impre- I'm impressed that he got a master's I am too. thesis I, in I'd this actually, subject. Oh, I'm very impressed. Yeah, I'm serious when I say I'd like to read that paper. I'm thinking I got an extra chair open here for guide talk. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Go right. for it. Yeah. All right. Um, another end time question. Does the Bible give us any indication what country the Antichrist will come out of? Also, with the way the world looks right now, do you think it's possible that the Antichrist could be on the earth now? Wow. So this uh, this is this is an interesting question. It's um, um, this person has obviously studied a little bit, and the Bible, I believe, actually indicates two things about the Antichrist: one, that he will come out of the former Roman Empire. Uh, and we get that from the prophecy in Daniel 9. But two, it also says, uh, and, and I, I'm struggling to get the verse, and maybe I can search for it when Tom is talking here, that he is an Assyrian, which would have been part of the old Roman Empire. Um, so, uh, and and by the way, I also think that he is a Gentile and not a Jew, um, which is another indication. And then finally, when does he come on the scene? There's an interesting passage And it's in Revelation 17, and this phrase is repeated like three times in Revelation 17. And it says that the beast that you saw, this is the Antichrist, once was, now is not, and is coming again out of the abyss. So that means that at the time of the end times, this beast, this Antichrist, who once was, now is not, remember John saw this vision in 96 AD or so, and is coming again out of the abyss. Well, I don't know anybody that has come from the abyss. Everybody else has been born. So I think that this Antichrist is a unique character that's going to come upon the earth in a unique way, according to Revelation 17. So I don't think the church will ever see the Antichrist. I think we'll be gone before he comes on the scene. It's my prayer. (laughs) I'd rather be gone, quite (laughs) frankly. You know, I find it interesting because— I search the scriptures like we all do. And in 1 John 2, 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. The use of the word Antichrist seems to be not just simply a single individual, although it is that, but it is also anyone that opposes 
that uh, Jesus is the Christ. You know, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who uh, denies the Father and Son, uh, verse 22. So it's kind of hard to say. I don't know. I wish I had a real better understanding of this biblically. Um, I do believe there will probably be a very evil individual that's going to come upon the scene. But how we understand that, I'm not sure. But I know that even in the early church, when the scriptures are written, they already felt that the uh, there were many antichrists already among them. So something's going on here that I wish I could tell you definitively, but I can't. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There is, you know, John makes it clear there are many antichrists that have come. So anti-opposed to right. Christ. And clearly there's many people who are opposed to Christ. So there are many antichrists. But just as you said, Tom, yes, I believe the Bible indicates what is called the beast in Revelation, the lawless one, uh, this man doomed to destruction, the Antichrist is a a character that appears during the end times and and will rule the whole earth in the sec- especially in the second half of the tribulation. All right, here's another uh, comment question. There have been times when God has suddenly revealed to me some past sinful attitudes and behaviors. My heart responds with overwhelming grief and conviction. How big a role should daily introspection, confession to God, and repentance play in our personal devotion and sanctification? I think it wow. should I think it should be there, but it better not become the dominant issue of who we are, because we are new creatures in Christ and we have been created to be his ambassadors. I think Satan is very good at making us feel pretty bad about ourselves. And let's face it, we've all done bad things. We've all done stupid things. There are things in my past that every once in a while show up. Now, I'm the kind of person that when they show up, I not only confess with the Lord, if I can get a hold of that person, I actually pick up the internet or the phone and I call them. And I say, you know, back when we were eight years old, you know, I did this, this, and this, and I sinned against you and against the Lord. Now, the point of that is not so I can wallow in my sin or feel bad about how bad I am. Because my goal is to become more like Jesus, and it is relieving uh, another burden that he's shown me in my life that may have touched or hurt somebody else, and I want to get rid of that because I want to represent to them the reality of Jesus Christ. Hmm. I, I, I 100% agree with that. We Look, we're to turn from the world, so our understanding of our sin, our confession, uh, repenting, turning from that, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed uh, by the renewal of our mind. So we should we should constantly be aware of when we're wandering away from God's ways and 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 so on. But what what Tom focused on was this idea that the righteous shall live by faith. We yes. live by trusting in Him. We live by fixing our eyes on Him. By, by by trusting in him with all of our heart, by abiding in him. And, and that was what was at the heart of, of Tom's answer, that that is how we ter- are to live. Look, conviction of sin is good, but don't forget, Satan has all those old tapes too, and, and sometimes he'll plug them in and play them and they'll come to mind, you know, maybe right before you're going to speak to a group at Bible study or something, and, and, and he's doing it to say, oh, you're not worthy. You are not worthy at all to do this. And so don't listen to that voice. You are, as Tom said, we are his children, and he is our king. He knows us, and we are his. It comes down to this. Once you have repented and received Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're no longer repenting to be made right with Jesus so you can get Mm -hmm. saved, because you're already saved. What you're doing is you're doing it so you become more like Jesus. 
and let's get these burdens off of us and let's become genuine people that are open. That can be, people can tell us we did stupid things in the past and instead of justifying it or fighting against it, to look them in the eye and say, you're right, I sinned against you and the Lord Jesus, please forgive me, how can I make up for that? People don't get that in this world. They don't even get it from the church oftentimes. That's what we're supposed to be doing. I heard a chapel study one time, and the the speaker said, focus on growing a healthy lawn, not focusing on the weeds and, and picking weeds right. and pulling weeds and trying to kill the weeds. Focus on a healthy lawn, and a healthy lawn is naturally resistant to weeds. That's the picture of faith that we just described, I think. Focus on trusting in him, and the rest will take care of itself. Good word. Nice. All right, um, here's... Uh, a passage, First Peter 4, 6. I tried to give Tom a heads up there. Uh, he, I don't know if you have that. Jeff, do you have First Peter 4, 6? The question is... I have it up. Do the dead that Jesus I got it. preaches to have a second chance at life? Let's have yeah, somebody is, read it first. For Tom, this is the... I'm sorry, go ahead, Tom. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So the question is, do the dead that Jesus preaches to have a second chance at life? You know, the Scripture yeah, I, here— Go ahead, Jeff. I'll jump in I, there. I, I don't think they do. I think, remember, preaching uh, is, is proclaiming. And I think the, the scriptures actually has a couple references to Jesus going down into Hades and preaching the gospel or proclaiming. I think what he proclaimed was not the, the gospel for people to be saved, because scripture is clear that once you die, you, you die and then are appointed to face judgment. So you, yeah. I think your fate, your eternal fate is sealed at death. What he did, I think— on that, uh, for those three days, was to proclaim, "I'm the Christ. I have conquered sin and death, and I'm going to rise again." And he is proclaiming his victory to to uh, to everybody uh, under the under the earth in, in in Hades. And so it's not so that they could be saved, but it's just a proclamation that of what he has done. I agree. That fits with the rest of the Bible, and one of the reasons that I I agree so strongly is that you have people that were the dead who obviously according to this, have some form of consciousness in Sheol or Hades or wherever they're at. But Jesus went there not to rescue them. They already had their chance. But I think his preaching was explaining to them why they're there. They may not have a full understanding of why they're in this situation or how when they never heard of the God of Israel, but they didn't obey the law that was in their heart, as Romans talks about, the Lord Jesus explained what caused this problem? And it's the same basis for all of us unless we submit to Jesus and what he's done. You know, there's a story of the scene that goes on in Hades in Luke 16. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and they both die and they go to Hades. One's on one side and one's on the other. And there's actually this conversation. So, Tom, you said there's this conscious existence after death. Yeah. Absolutely, there is. And so the, the rich man says, I beg you, Father, at least send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they also don't come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, listen to this, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Yep. We have the word of God. People have asked me, why doesn't God make himself more clear to the world so that the world may know that that he's here? And it's like, man, if you're listening, 
He's shouting from heaven. He sent his son to the earth to proclaim that he is here, and he's given us his word, this testament, this New Testament that describes the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've often been told that in heaven we won't use the word but. (laughs) So when we realize (laughs) what we've done or what the Lord, you know, we didn't uh, grab onto his salvation, we can't say but— I didn't have a chance. No, there are no buts. We already know. Mm, I like, we'll take a break. Lots more God Talks. Matter of fact, we're going to do an extended version. So plenty of time for your questions. We're going to do an extra half hour at the top of the hour. So up until 5.30 Central, 6.30 Eastern, and 4.30 whatever. I don't even know where you're listening, but we're around for another 30 minutes. So get your questions over, 877-933-2484. When we come back, we're going to talk about young kings. How did young kings pull it off at 8, 12, 15 years old? We're going to find out. From the rain under the Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. This is Guy Talk. Guys that talk, and they do it well. Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, Power Panel today. And interesting question came in about, I wonder if you guys could talk about the kings of the Old Testament. I've been studying kings and chronicles really for the first time. I'm intrigued by the young ages of so many of the kings. I think the youngest one I read about was eight. Others are 12, 15, 22, 25. How did that work? How did such young boys carry out the role of a king. Obviously, this was part of God's plan. Why do you suppose that is? What do you think we are supposed to see in that? Well, the people asked for a king. That's how they got Saul. <laughs> then they realized that was a mistake. But the Lord said, you know, they, instead of receiving me as their king, they want an earthly king like everybody else. So he gave them an earthly king. Everybody found out that wasn't as good as they thought, it was not a good deal. The Lord, though, when he appointed or brought up an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old to be king, everybody would say, that's impossible. But it showed the power of Yahweh and what he could do through these Israelite kings, even at that young age. And the problem we have today is that because we so intellectualize Christianity, we forget that the issue of faith can occur very early in someone's life, much earlier than we give credit. And the Lord can use 8-year-olds significantly for the kingdom of God And throughout history, that's been seen over and over and over. Even in the Holocaust, there were young kids there who literally took on adult roles and helped guide people and save people from being exterminated. Pretty amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. Anything to add, Jeff? God God says, right before they asked for this king, as Tom said, and they got Saul, the first king of Israel, God had just told them, I am your king. I will lead you. I will go before you. I will fight your battles for you. And, and and not like a chapter later, 
Israel is saying, oh, give us a king. Give us a king to lead us, to go before us and to fight our battles for us. And can you imagine how, how hurt God would have been? It's like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm your king. And he finally relents and says, all right, I'll give you an earthly king so that you can be like the other nations. And that's how they got the kingdom. Um, in my own study of the kings, I never, I, I mean, I recognized that many of them were young, but I never really focused on that. I kind of focused on whether they were good kings who sure. did right in the eyes of the Lord or whether they were bad kings who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's interesting, once the kingdom was divided and we had Israel to the north and Judah to the south, none of the kings of Israel were good, mm -hmm. not one. There's like 20 kings and the list is all bad and they end up falling falling to Assyria, to that invasion, and God gives them over to destruction, basically, because they weren't following his ways. Yeah. Judah lasted a little longer because they had some good kings, uh, but eventually they too, uh, as it points out in Daniel 9, did not follow God's ways, and so God brought the Babylonians to the southern kingdom. I think sometimes David and Goliath, we miss the point. You know, here you have Israel's army, and they're up against the Philistines, and, of course, you've got Goliath and his comrades, and they're the big guys. And nobody wants to fight them. Everybody's afraid of them. And I'm, I would imagine on the side of Israel, they had some Arnold Schwarzeneggers. I mean, they had some big people that really looked tough. But what does the Lord do? He picks a shepherd boy. And, you know, you see the pictures out there, and David looks pretty healthy. Um, my kids would say he was a nerd. He, he probably was skinny, didn't have a lot of meat to him, wasn't really that tough. But what he had was a faith in the one true God who was the real one who centered that stone in the middle of for Goliath's forehead. He was also a very attractive kid. That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in. Well, you, you know, know, some as, of us that were nerds as kids were still attractive. As, as host of the show. <laughs> um, and so it's Groundhog's Day, and so I guess more winter, but is a groundhog just a squirrel that has spent too much time at that all-you-can-eat buffet line? <laughs> Good insight. Because it kind of kind of looks like it, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. All right, let's move on to other questions. All right. Um, will you please explain the elect of God, Ephesians 1, 4. Has God already chosen everyone who will have eternal life? Simple question with four minutes to go. Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or I'll jump in. I don't we, want to overtalk this. Yeah, we, we had kind of... this relates to our conversation just about uh, a half hour ago or so, where we kind of talked about the idea of predestined, and does God predestine some to be saved and others to be saved? And I, I just, you know, I understand this argument has been going on within Christianity for 500 years or more, but I see in Scripture a God that wishes none to perish. Yep. He wants all to come to repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel says. Um, he wants all to be saved, and so he loves the world he desires all to be saved, so he sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, so I think he wants all to be saved and offer salvation to whosoever believes he will save. Now, he knows who is going to be saved. Right. 
So when he says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, he knows every single person who would believe. But I don't think he causes some to believe, and therefore the contrapositive argument would be, therefore, that he causes some not to be saved. And I just don't think that's the God of Scripture. I agree, and the reason I look at it that way, if you look at the Scriptures here, the Ephesians 1-4, even as he chose us in him. We were talking in the green room before we started today, and I was talking with a gentleman, and we both admitted now, we're both very evangelical. We believe the Bible. We want people to know Jesus. But when I woke up to Jesus, it wasn't a logical process. It wasn't like I figured it all out after reading the Bible a bunch of times. And finally, he said, well, two plus two equals four. Therefore, Jesus is Savior. It literally woke up one day, and suddenly it just dawned on me who he was. And that is goes back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know, You've been literally, by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. The Lord plants it in us. So the choosing is what we see once we're saved, but it doesn't mean choosing in the sense of the exclusion of others. I I love that picture in Revelation where it says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Mm -hmm. In other words, who who is the, uh, part of the debate is who's the first mover in all of this? And I think God is the first mover. He definitely is standing there and knocking, but we need to open the door. Whosoever opens the door, that's a picture of faith. Jesus says, then I will come in and eat with them and they with with me. I think that's a picture of salvation. At the well, Jesus said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and it would for living water and it would well up to eternal life. Again, I think that's a picture of faith. Don't forget, God sends his spirit out into the world to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. He says, all creation declares God's glory so that man is without excuse. I think God knocks on the heart of every single person's, the door of the heart of every single person in the world. I totally agree. This is like having an unlimited fun pass wristband. This is great. We're going to do this for another half hour after the break. So keep your questions coming in. I've got some really amazing questions that I have not gotten to yet. So I will be getting to those after we take our our top of the hour break. And when we come back, we'll have another 30 minutes of guy talk. And I have to say, some of the questions that are still ahead are amazing, and I can't wait to get to them. But if you would like to start each week with a moment of reflection and prayer with the Faith Radio Prayer devotional email, I encourage you to do that. You can sign up for that today at myfaithradio.com. And when we come back, the Power Panel will continue to be here. Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn are my guests today. And if you send over your questions, uh, the text line is open just for you. 877-933-2484. One more time, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. And then at uh, after Guide Talk, I have Beverly Canaris already here in the green room. And I can't wait to have her on the program as well. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.